This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Part of the reason that I wanted to do the research in the way that I did, where I actually did the thing with my own hands, I would notice like, oh, the pink of the sunset is a little bit different today, or this flower is budding that wasn't yesterday. That was the point, but nobody told me that was the point. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. Hey, Karen. So who did you talk to this week? So the voice we heard at the beginning of the show belongs to Hannah Kirschner. She's the author of Water, Wood and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town. And the book is a really engaging account of the time Hannah spent in the rural Japanese town of Yamanaka, working alongside various artisans and learning from them. It's an appreciation of traditional arts like sake brewing, wood turning and duck hunting, to name just three, and a meditation on why people choose to do those things. Oh, wow. Well, I can't wait to hear the interview and I can't wait to hear the Slate Plus segment this week either. What did you guys talk about? So I asked Hannah if there was one of the 10 or so different fields that she learned about that she really connected with. And we talked about the chapter that really stuck with me, which was when she cultivated rice naturally using hand tools and without any agricultural chemicals and how that changed the way she eats and she appreciates her food. That's incredible. Uh, So listeners, if you haven't already, why not join Slate Plus and listen to this fascinating new segment? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like the Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's hear June's conversation with Hannah Kirshner. Hannah Kirshner, I am delighted to speak with you today because I absolutely loved your book, Water, Wood and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town. Let's begin with you telling our listeners what the book is about. Well, it's about the town of Yamanaka Onsen, which is in Ishikawa Prefecture in Japan. So it's this little mountain hot spring town. And I spent a few years there following the work of the people literally making the culture of the town. So artisans and artists and farmers and hunters and foragers. And with each person I spent a few months or even a few years apprenticing to them or tagging along, learning from them to see how they make the things that they do and also why and and their relationship to work and tradition and how all these things weave together into the culture of the town and the community too. Yeah. The first time I went to Japan, I wrote a series for Slate. It was about artisans. It was about shokunin. There were in the Tokyo area, so quite different from this countryside um, place that you were based in. But I think the series was called Doing Things the Hard Way. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, I want to go back and read that. Because <laughs> a lot of the time, like, it just seems like there are so much easier ways of doing this thing. And it's not just like there's this cheap, nasty way and then there's this more traditional way. There's like really, really, really hard, as hard as you can possibly make it. And that's kind of how certain kinds of Japanese craftspeople tend to work. And a lot of the people, not all of them necessarily, but a lot of the people you write about have that approach to life, it seems to me. It was really fascinating to see, I mean, if you are choosing to do something the hard way or entirely by hand, like why and what's the point? What do you get out of that? And and see the relationships that people have with their work through that. But also like... I was very fascinated with, in the sake brewery where I worked in particular and in other sake breweries I visited, like, there's this combination of really old traditional tools and really new modern tools. And 
how it wasn't just choosing one or the other, but this, these very deliberate choices about like, well, the way we've been doing this for centuries works just fine, so why change it? Or, well, this area, you know what? It would really be nice to make it a little easier. Or this this new technology like just really does do a better job. So yeah. like, you know, not just wholesale one or the other old traditional way or new technological way, but like how people are being very deliberate about those choices. Yeah. And I was very curious about how you came to write the book. And I should say that the reason I'm asking is that one of the things that became clear to me as I was reading it is that it's not a stunt book. You know, this when by a stunt book, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but mm-hmm. it is a thing, you know, that's where people say, I did X so that I could write a book about it. And your book did not read that way at all. So I'm curious, did you always intend for your time in Japan to be the basis of a book and these things that you were studying uh, with these very experienced craftsmen and creators? Well, I knew I wanted to write a book, but I thought I wanted to write probably a cookbook or a book about Japanese food. And basically, I first went to Japan when I was straight out of college and spent a month with a bunch of bike messengers in a bike messenger house in Kyoto and um, stayed friends with those guys. And years later, one of them introduced me to the owner of a small sake bar in this town, Yamanaka Onsen. So he actually asked me if I would host this guy when he wanted to, he said, oh, my friend who owns the sake bar, he really wants to come to New York and could you host him? And I'm like, sure. I mean, you hosted me. I didn't even know you and you hosted me in your house. And I was like this kid traveling on a month with only $500 and like, yeah, of course I'll, I'll host your friend. Meanwhile, he tells the, the bar owner, my friends in New York really want to meet you. Can you go visit them? <laughs> Luckily, this worked out, and um, it ended up leading then to me going and apprenticing in his bar in Yamanaka. And I was just thinking at the time, like, well, this will be a really, I mean, it's such a rare and unusual opportunity. And I don't know what doors it's going to open, but it's going to open doors. And and maybe this will tell me, like, what kind of cookbook I'd want to write. I mean, sake is part of the food culture of Japan, so learning about sake could lead me somewhere. But what it led to, instead of a cookbook, you know, I, I, as I said, like, I met all these different people making the town's culture. Like, a bar can be sort of a community hub. And so I met this guy who was, like, making charcoal in his village where that used to be the main industry. And now he's the only person living in that outer village of Yamanaka. I met all these incredible wood turners and, and lacquer craftspeople And I realized the book I wanted to write was like, how do all these things, if you think about a Japanese meal, like how do all these things come to the table and how were they made and what are the stories behind them and who are the people making them? Yeah. And before we go further, since you mentioned, you know, Yamanaka is a place that used to have X, that used to have Y, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a mountain town. It's very far from Tokyo. It's very far from, I think, how most people picture Japan. Can you explain what it's like to be in Japan's deep countryside? Can you describe Yamanaka? Yeah. I mean, for me, the first thing I noticed was just in the geography and the landscape, like the striking similarities to the Pacific Northwest where I'm from. So there's all these tree plantations of um, sugi, which usually gets translated as cedar, but it's a kind of cypress actually. But th- so there's these evergreen trees and then there's just like moss and ferns. It's so green. It's very humid all year round. So it's cold and wet in the winter and <laughs> really humid and muggy in the summer. Um, but the town itself is very charming and there's a real sense of just kind of like everybody knows each other. It is a small community. And because it's a hot spring town, it has an onsen it's been a tourist destination for over a thousand years. So <laughs> a thousand years. It hasn't been. It's not spoiled by that tourism somehow. It, this town's not jaded. Instead, I think it's sort of had this effect of there being cultural exchange, even though it's this really tiny place. It used to be somewhere that the merchant sailors would come in on their break and stay there. It used to be a sort of a religious pilgrimage for the hot springs too. And so... There's always been people coming and going from other places. And 
you know, it supports the craft industry because there's people coming who want to buy souvenirs. So that's how it ended up being this wood turning town, too, is that the wood turners could sell their wares as souvenirs um, and their materials are right there in the mm-hmm. forest. So, mm-hmm. so Hannah, what is wood turning? So it is using a sharp tool with a, to shape a piece of wood that is spinning on a lathe. In Yamanaka, you're mostly making cups or bowls and carving the shape out as this hunk of wood spins very fast. You have pedals to control it, kind of like, I mean, to me, I thought of like a sewing machine. But Yamanaka has its own distinct style of lathe, and all the craftsmen make their own tools to use with this kind of lathe. To the extent that this kind of town is written about in the, let's just say, the Western media, it's as places that are dying or certainly shrinking, uh, disappearing. I don't, all of those words seem very negative, but it's also just kind of reality. Those, a lot of the, even the crafts that you're talking about, you know, maybe the last person doing it, maybe they're even the people that you write about are doing it for the last time. How did you approach that question of the decline in a place that you clearly love so much and write, write about so lovingly and full of affection for while kind of dealing with that, is it even going to be there? That's certainly a reality that small towns in Japan are losing population and have been for a long time that, you know, the young people go to the cities because that's where there's more opportunity and people don't want the hard life of being a farmer or working with their hands necessarily. But I noticed right away, too, that there were young people moving there because they were interested in that kind of life. So, yeah, like Mika Horie, the paper maker and photographer that I write about, she moved from Kyoto to Yamanaka because she could harvest the materials for her paper herself, make her paper, and then she takes photographs of the landscape and makes cyanotypes on her handmade paper. You know, and then some of the people farming also left other work and moved there because that they wanted to have a life where they were more connected to the source of their food. And then like Takehito Nakajima, the the wood turner that I write about, he grew up there um, and is practicing this very traditional craft of wood turning. But at the same time, he's both an artisan and an artist and really trying to sustain a tradition. But at the same time, like he said to me, like, well, you know, tradition's not just something in the past. It's something that we're making. So he's he says, you know, I I'm, hope that I'm making things that 100 years from now people will say are traditional. Yeah. So when you were uh, in Yamanaka and you were, again, I don't want to harp on this, but um, were you conscious of kind of helping these traditions to survive through your book and through your writing? Was that like part of your motivations for writing the book? I mean, a little bit. It sort of felt like there are all these things that either people don't know about or if they've been written about in English, they're just it's wrong. Like I read, I read some articles about the, the duck hunters that I followed that like even the first day I spent with them, I was like, wait a minute, those, <laughs> whoever wrote that story like didn't get this quite right. So I definitely felt because of that, like a real responsibility to try to represent people and their work as like honestly and accurately as possible and really take the time to learn in depth about what they were doing. And I don't know. I don't think it's really like my place to be like, oh, we should save these crafts. I mean, so, yeah, I wanted to honor and document these crafts, these these and it's not just crafts, but the work that people are doing because because it's beautiful. It's meaningful. It's connected to history in all sorts of fascinating ways, too. But I think especially as a woman, I have a complicated relationship to tradition. I mean, there a lot of these traditions, you know, used to exclude women. Or, I mean, just like when we talk about traditional culture, that often excludes a lot of people. And so I really wondered, like, how can we save the beautiful parts of a tradition while also making it fit with, like, our contemporary values? And, and really every single person that I wrote about answered that in some different way through their life and work. 
Yeah. And of course, that is a good opportunity to bring up something that is very, you know, feels very salient. You know, I've spent time in Japan. I'm very aware that a lot of Japanese people have a kind of fascination with foreigners or specifically non-Asian foreigners um, yeah. or people who are visibly not Japanese, maybe. And you must have been super aware of that, hyper aware of that when you were in Yamanaka. Did yeah, that... especially in a small town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And being a woman doing those things. So how did yeah. you negotiate that, those feelings? You know, it was both a challenge and an advantage. There's definitely like, you know, privileges afforded because of that difference that especially white American foreigners get. Um, and also being treated as a perpetual guest, which can be really annoying, but it also can mean that you're forgiven for all sorts of social faux pas or that people, you know, want to show off to you or share with you. So it definitely took time to sort of get past that in my relationships with people. And yeah, and it was something I felt like I had to negotiate in like how I wrote also. Yeah, that's what I was curious about, because, um, you know, you're being reminded constantly, I guess, of your status as an outsider and part of writing, especially something like this, where you're writing about an experience, you have to be a little bit of an outsider to do that kind of writing. Like, do you think in some way it helped? Oh, yeah, it did help in some ways because, yeah, people were, were a little bit more willing to like share or open up. But sometimes it was the opposite. I mean, rural Japan, and I think this is kind of true of rural places in a lot of the world, can be very insular. And so much is based on, on trust and relationships. And so if you're an outsider, a lot's just like closed off to you. And like my friend who's from Kyoto, actually the bike messenger who first connected me with Yamanaka, he works in the town now too. And like now that I've been living there for a few years, He's like, oh, I'm more of a foreigner here than you are, Hannah. <laughs> so like somebody from, from just even the next town over can be considered a foreigner. Somebody from the big city is really a foreigner. <laughs> so, but there's that flip side to that is that once you're in, suddenly all these doors open. So the sake brewery I worked in, they had not had a woman or a foreigner in 14 generations of being in business. Not so much that they were opposed to it that just hadn't been done um and it's a small brewery so they don't really like give tours or anything like that so even just to get to go look inside like took a lot of convincing but the reason that he finally decided to let me work there was because the woodturner nakashima who's his friend who i'd already you know worked with he said oh hannah's fine she's she's good you should let her and so a lot of a lot of things worked like that too so you know, two sides to the same coin. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Hannah Kirshner. Hello, working listeners. We want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Hannah Kirshner. One of the things I was very aware of as somebody who is neither outdoorsy nor strong nor kind of good with my hands in a certain sense was that a lot of the things that you were doing were like really hard labor. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I just kind of wondered like, I can only imagine you going home and just like passing out. And yet I imagine you kind of had to, you know, make notes, start writing. How did you combine just backbreaking physical labor with writing? Yeah, I was exhausted and I was trying to write this book at the same time, especially the, you know, the first few chapters I wrote before finishing the book proposal. And, and there were some things that I'd sort of had in process. But once the book was under contract, I had a 
a year, which stretched to 18 months, but, you know, a year and a half to get it done. So I was doing these experiences. There were sort of three parts to the research. There were the experiences. There was, like, book research, which I ended up um, hiring a friend to be my assistant with that. And then there was also um, interviews with the people, like, once I finished the experiences. But um, I always had, like, a little Muji pocket notebook in my pocket at all times. So I took a lot of notes just while I was doing things, while I was talking to people. If somebody said something amazing, (laughs) jotting it down. And, you know, just details of, like, the weather and how something smells and, like, little just visual things that I noticed. And then I had journals all over my house, like, in every room of the house, so I couldn't be lazy. (laughs) At some point every day in one of those journals, I would would write more about, you know, whatever experiences were I thought might become part of the book. And then the the real writing, the writing of the chapters, I guess I did on the off days when I wasn't uh, out following boar hunters through the snow or <laughs> lifting, you know, huge bags of rice in the sake brewery. It was exhausting, though. I seriously don't know how I did it because now just like more normal things exhaust me. And I guess it was just the excitement and an energy of like having those opportunities as well as the opportunity to write about them. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned um, that you hired someone to help you with the research. Can you say more about that, why you did that, and and what kind of research help you sought out? Yeah. Well, I knew I wanted to include, like, some history, and also there are just... I love, like, having really precise details. Like, if I talk about a volcano that's old, like, how many years old is it? Or if I say, like rural towns are losing population. Well, it's nice to have like some data to back that up. And my Japanese is conversational. It's probably worse than conversational when I started. (laughs) Um, I'm not fluent and I'm not literate. I mean, I can read a menu, but I can't read a textbook. So, and then I started coming across all these books that were like a local history of one of the outer villages of Yamanaka or like from the duck pond, like a history of the duck pond or um, a cookbook that was all about just that region's cuisine. And it would have just been such a shame not to draw on those resources. So I didn't want my lack of language ability to get in the way of that. So I started talking to a friend of mine who was um, grew up in the area now lives in Tokyo. He studied anthropology, but was working for like a tech company. And I was like, I don't know, do you know anybody? Maybe they could just like translate sections of books for me. And he's like, I don't know, like my English isn't really good enough. Maybe I know somebody. (laughs) But then I I ended up working with this friend. So he had actually, his thesis had been on the woodworkers, the woodturners of Yamanaka, and he grew up there. So he just had such an understanding of the area. And it was really nice to work with somebody who was a good researcher as opposed to like had perfect English. I mean, actually his English is very good, but we just kind of worked out a system where I would send him books and things that I was finding. He would go to libraries in Tokyo where he had access to documents and things that I didn't like old newspapers and things. And um, I'd send him a list of questions for each chapter and he'd give me short answers. And then I'd say, oh, that's interesting. Can you tell me more about that? And we just kind of figured out as we went how to go back and forth. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'm sure you're being a little bit modest about your Japanese, but, you know, it was very clear that even if you had been super fluent, these are very specific, um, you know, I'm sure that whatever vocabulary there is in, you know, the several different things that you did, you know, you not only have to be fluent in Japanese, but also be fluent in you know, wood turning or rice growing. and Well, that was the other funny thing is because I learned about woodworking in Japanese. So I didn't actually know the correct terms for these things in English. So then <laughs> once I wrote it in English, then I had to go find some American wood turners and be like, can you read this and tell me if I'm like calling these tools the right things? Or like if this sounds okay to a woodworker. Wow. Yeah. So. Wow. That's, that's crazy. But I was very struck by like the way that the learning process, as you described it, was often 
kind of wordless for everyone, yeah. not just for you, but that was kind of the nature of the apprenticeship system that everyone who learned those trades or crafts or skills knew. Yeah, definitely. With the more traditional ways of teaching craft, it's not very verbal. There's not a lot of explanation. You're meant to just watch the master and see what they do and sort of do busy work until you figure it out. Some of my experiences were a little bit different because like with the woodturner, like he was actually teaching me a lesson. But yeah, a lot of it was like, whether you're fluent in Japanese or not, like that language is not how a lot of the information is being conveyed. So I'm conscious that there's no formal apprenticeship in writing. But I don't know if you were conscious of how learning in this way, in this kind of wordless way, mm -hmm. did that kind of trickle down into the way you wrote about it? Because you weren't just kind of translating what people had said to you. You had to convey this experience that you had with people. Part of the reason that I wanted to do the research in the way that I did, where I spent so much time with people, where I and where I actually did the thing, whatever it was, with my own hands, is because then I get to learn so much that somebody would probably never tell me in an interview. I could interview them over and over and over again, and they might not articulate that. Just being in the space, seeing how they work, seeing how they interact with their colleagues or their, their friends. And like, especially with the duck hunters, this was really poignant. Like, they go out there every evening, right as the ducks are leaving the pond from November to February, and they're catching ducks with this essentially a net on this like Y-shaped frame that they toss into the air right when the ducks fly over. And the duck, you know, they have to intersect perfectly with the duck so that then it, the duck flies into the net and falls to the ground and is stunned. And it's a really inefficient way to catch ducks. <laughs> That's clearly not the point. You yeah, know, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a skill. It's a sport, really, more than like a way of gathering food, although it, I, I guess it, in some ways it used to be. But um, sitting out there with them day after day, like I would notice like, oh, the pink of the sunset is a little bit different today or this flower is budding that wasn't yesterday. Oh, and now today it's blooming like just these details of the landscape or, or connecting with like oh, I can feel the winds coming from this direction, so that means the ducks are going to behave in this way today. That that was the point. But nobody told me that was the point. Like, I had to go out there day after day after day to myself to feel that. Totally. One of the, I want to go back to, you know, you, when right at the beginning you were saying how you had originally thought maybe you would do a cookbook. Um, I don't think we really kind of explored what your connection with food was at that point. Sure. I mean, my connection with food is just first and foremost that I love to eat and I love to cook. And <laughs> I, ever since I was a kid, like I would make up recipes and throw dinner parties. And, and um, I thought that I wanted to do something with food, but I had an aunt who was a chef and then left that because it's such a hard life. And I think I knew pretty early on that I didn't need to <laughs> spend the rest of my life in a kitchen. I have such admiration for people who do, but I didn't want to. And so I eventually found my way to recipe development and testing and food styling, which I, I have an art background, I actually studied art. So food styling was this great intersection of visual skills and cooking skills. And you put recipes after every section of the book. Did you kind of expect people to make the things that you had kind of told them how to make? Yes and no. I, the recipes are there partly because that's just my way of relating to and experiencing the world and what I notice and tune into. And it's sort of another layer of storytelling, a way to sort of tell a little anecdote at the end of each chapter that doesn't necessarily fit into the main chapter. But I think the recipes function in two ways. Like some of them are there so that readers can experience a little bit of Yamanaka themselves like maybe you can't travel there but you can make this candy or you can make this fried chicken but others are really more to document like I find it sort of 
frustrating when I can't find information about these very local foods that because I think they don't get written about because, oh, well, you can't find that ingredient anywhere. So nobody writes the recipe in English or, or um, shares it outside of their community. And it's still interesting to know how something's made. And maybe if you're lucky and you come across that ingredient, then you'll know what to do with it. But um, yeah, it was as much about like archiving and documenting a recipe as it was. I mean, I don't think many people are going to be going out foraging for wasabi leaves, <laughs> although you can mail order them in the U.S. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the recipe that I'm, I'm not I, I don't really cook anyway, but there's a recipe that that involved boar that. You know, I I wanted to eat it. I don't think I want to make it because it's way beyond my skill level. But it was like an adventure just reading that recipe. I'm glad you felt that way, <laughs> that it was an adventure. But actually, that one's not that hard. It's just a stew. It's got a lot of ingredients, but it's just a stew. You just throw everything in there and keep cooking it for a long time. Well, yeah, but you forget in the first uh, part, first catch your wild boar. You know, like, yeah. Well, yeah. no, yeah. Although we have an invasive wild boar problem in parts of the U.S., so. 20 or 30 feral ones, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, one of the reasons I asked about um, the recipes was, and maybe this is fanciful and weird, but there's a an endless fascination with Julia Child. There's a great new HBO Max series mm-hmm. that's, uh, I think it just is currently airing, uh, who brought, in a way, French cooking to America. And you, your book reminded me of some aspects of her first project, The Art of French Cooking, this is the art of traditional Japanese life. This food represents hmm. traditional Japan. Did you take inspiration, maybe not exactly from Julia Child, but for anywhere or anyone else when you were kind of conceiving of and writing Water, Wood and Wild Things? I mean, that's incredibly flattering to be <laughs> compared at all to Julia Child. And I, I mean, I think when it comes to really like documenting Japanese food, that there are other people that have done that really well already. Like Elizabeth Ando's work is incredible. But I'm sure, I mean, I've just consumed so many of those books, like Anything and Everything by MFK Fisher. And I, I'm sure that those things seeped in there, if not intentionally. I was also thinking about like travel logs and some of these old travel logs about J- Japan, which a lot of them are really quite offensive if you look at them now. But thinking about like what what would a newer version of that form look like? And the illustrations kind of reference that a little bit too. Like I have these pen and ink drawings that a little bit have that feel of like the old travel logs. Yeah. My last question is, um, you know, the paperback version of the book has just been released but the hardback uh, came out last year were there any surprises for you about the way that the book was received well unfortunately most people in Yamanaka can't read it because it's in English a few did and I was really touched that they felt that they were well represented because I mean you know, it's not an expose. I wasn't like telling all the dirty secrets of everybody, but I tried to have an honest representation, which was not always completely flattering. And so that was neat to see that people were so happy about seeing themselves in the pages. Um, Yeah. And it's just a a lot of people have told me, like American readers have told me that they find it very soothing, Mm. which I didn't know that I'd written a soothing book, but I think there's a lot about being in Yamanaka and that landscape and the pace of life that I find very soothing. So mm-hmm. it's nice to see that that comes across. Hannah Kirshner, thank you so much for talking with us on, on working and for writing your book, Water, Wood and Wild Things. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to get to talk to you. I found this interview really fascinating because this approach, someone not of a culture writing about that culture as an expert, especially with the kind of lack of language ability that Hannah mentions, is a really fraught topic. I'm not saying that there's just one answer to this question, but for you as an admirer of Kirshner's, what do you think makes the difference between a sort of appropriation and appreciation? 
Karen, I'm so glad that you asked this question first, because it really is the big one that's hovering over any project like this. Is Mm -hmm. this writer exploiting someone else's culture and traditions? And I have to say, despite being really interested in traditional Japanese arts and crafts, I did not read this book when it first came out because I was afraid it might be appropriative, if that's Mm -hmm. a word. Um, To my great relief, I did not experience it that way at all. And some of the reasons I think that the book comes across as a very loving appreciation are, first of all, she put in the work, like literally, she sweated in the sake brewery, she toiled under the sun and in the rain and among the bugs to grow rice, you know, she put her fingers at risk to turn wood. She wasn't sitting watching someone do this stuff, she was toiling alongside them. Uh, She also But in the time, like if you are writing a travel story, which is a genre I've done quite a bit of, no matter how much preparation you do, and I hope I always put in more than I had to, you're still parachuting in to take a snapshot. And this book isn't a snapshot. It's a beautifully complex portrait of a town and its history. And I also think she handled her own role in the story really well. Like, she's definitely a character in this book. It's about her experiences. But at the same time, if we continue with the slightly strained analogy of the book being a painting of Yamanaka, she's not the person who's rendered in most detail. The people Mm -hmm. who live and work there are beautifully filled out because they're the ones that matter. They're the reasons that she's there. And she never loses sight of who or what is important in this book. And finally, there's none of that, the Japanese are like this stuff, or like lazy analogies to American institutions or ways of doing things, both sins that I've committed in my writing about Japan, I must confess. (laughs) I'm really interested to hear that you said you were initially kind of apprehensive about reading this book. What made you actually decide to take a look at it? Honestly, it was that it sounded like it would be a great book for working because <laughs> it's about it's about work. So it's kind of, you know, it's one of those, and that's not all. There's another level of work. <laughs> and, you know, ultimately, I am just very interested in Japan. And actually, there's one other thing that just crossed my mind, which is that my partner read it, who has spent oh. a lot more time in Japan than me mm-hmm. and who speaks Japanese very well. And... It's kind of hard to impress her with books about Japan, <laughs> and this one did. So I thought, oh, you know what, I should give it a chance. And I'm really glad that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other things that I appreciated in your discussion with Hannah was the fact that being basically a white outsider is usually something of an advantage because there's still this fascination with Westerners, specifically white Westerners, that often doesn't extend to foreigners with darker skin tones. Um, I guess this isn't really necessarily a question for you specifically, but it's just something that I know is sometimes a part of my mental gymnastics as a journalist. Totally. I mean, the way we are perceived by others is something we have to work with because we usually can't change it or even truly know it. You know, our perceived race and gender and class affect every interaction we have in the world, including the ones that happen as part of our jobs. And as journalists, this often plays out in the way that someone we're trying to get information from responds Mm -hmm. to us. And, you know, there's a school of journalism that says the reporter should be as neutral as possible so that they don't become part of the story. You know, they should sort of disappear into the background. You know, maybe not totally sold on that. But even if it were true, I don't think that that means that we all have to behave like cishet white guys, because that isn't my (laughs) definition of neutral. And, you know, not so much maybe for the kind of conversational podcast that we do, but in a setting where I'm trying to get a source to feel like they can share information with me, I do often notice myself like trying to be extra charming or super fun. Mm -hmm. And on some level, I think that's because some people who don't know any lesbians of a certain age kind of have the idea that we're all like uptight joke police, more earnest than thou types, you know. So I'm trying to counter that like subliminally or something. And, you know, it is not even slightly pleasant to try to imagine what negative stereotypes people are associating you with. So Mm -hmm. I'll be maybe a little bit of a Pollyanna and say, that there are also ways that this can be a benefit. Like Hannah Kirshner, yes, was the only non-Japanese person doing these things in Yamanaka, but she had 
really significant things in common with the other people who were drawn there by their interest in these crafts and traditions. And, you know, there are definitely occasions when your identity can create a deeper connection with your source. You know, their mother is a lesbian or their partner is an immigrant. You both like manga, whatever it might be. It can also work in your favor. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of on that note, I wanted to talk about building trust with a subject. How do you do that? Because Ugh. it's often very difficult to do. And then on top of that, extremely easy to break that trust. No, it totally is. And it's something that you have to negotiate anew every single time you talk to someone. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm established now. Everybody knows. No, it mm-hmm. doesn't work like that. And I also understand why people are wary of, of speaking to journalists or writers. We ask a lot of them. We're often asking them to share something it would be, let's just say, convenient to keep quiet about. And so I think ultimately you just have to be as honest as possible. Like one thing that often happens, I find, before people will talk to you, they'll say, well, what's your angle going to be? And, you know, like most writers, I imagine, I don't think I ever know the answer to that question until I've written the story and it's gone through editing. And I never want people to think, well, she told me it was going to be. And then Mm -hmm. so, you know, not making promises that you can't keep. And also something that uh, Hannah mentioned, which is keeping your notebook or your recording device quite visible. I think Mm -hmm. it's really good to remind people why you're there. Mm hmm. And I also want to talk about something that you cover, which is the experience of working with a research assistant, partially because I recently did it for the first time and almost felt kind of nervous about it. Uh, I'm so used to working by myself as a journalist and a writer. And granted, Hannah's experience seems to have mostly been because of the language barrier and needing someone to translate. Mm -hmm. But how do you learn to let someone into your project? I also have really limited experience of this. I'd say probably like the closest analog for me has been working with a fixer for a couple of stories I've written about Japan. I had people help me with logistics and also serve as an interpreter. And it was just very clear that it was necessary. You know, my (laughs) Japanese is very rudimentary. And even though my partner's is very good, you know, between the time difference when it comes to setting things up and jet lag when you get there, It just feels like working with someone would just make things go much smoother. I have to say, Mm -hmm. though, I've never just hired someone cold. It's always been I've always been able to kind of work with people that I already Mm. had a certain connection with. But one thing specifically about language, I think a journalistic setting is perhaps the only time when I really want to communicate in English, if at all possible. And even when I speak the language well, I want any quotes to be in the subject's language, not my Mm -hmm. translation. Like I've interviewed Pedro Almodovar a few times and he tends to switch between English and Spanish. So even though I understand his Spanish, I prefer to have an official English version to quote from. Mm -hmm. And he's usually accompanied by an amazing interpreter who is actually a woman who's a a very eminent scholar and professor. Uh, So it's very helpful. Wow. Do you feel like you learned anything from that process of working with a research assistant for the first time? Do you think it'll going to be easier next time around? I think I would have a better idea of it next time, because in this particular instance, uh, my research assistant was brought in pretty late in the process Mm -hmm. and also someone who was found by my editor and not by me. I had no personal connection to this person before I started working with them in that capacity. Um, And I, I feel like it's partially just sort of feeling still kind of young or green and that I didn't have the authority to tell someone what to do in order to help me. Like, and it also sort of feels like this is technically all stuff that I could do. It wasn't like translating where I really needed someone to do that for me. And it was sort of like, oh, like I could just do it. Like, why am I burdening someone else? (laughs) But I feel like maybe uh, if I had to have that experience again, I would take a little more initiative or be a little more certain or try to be a little more certain in myself in asking for things from them. Yeah. Um, I found Hannah's note about making sure that a proper portrait of the people she was writing about involved not always being totally flattering, which feels like an incredibly anxiety-inducing task. It's something that I feel like comes up a lot um, in contemporary like profile writing, especially, where obviously, hopefully, you're not setting out just to write a puff piece, but at the same time, how do you make sure that you're not burning that bridge? 
Yeah, for sure. It's hard to tell the truth as you see it and then have everyone you write about be completely happy. And it's probably also that's not the goal. And it's not just about burning bridges. It's that nowadays it's super easy for the people you write about to find that writing and respond, whether that's to be angry or to suggest you got some things wrong or, you know, to be super happy. Like, I think travel writing, especially however you define it, it used to be something that you could just like leave and the people would never know what you wrote. It's more in the open these days. And I, I think that's for the good. Um, I think, too, that the situation that Hannah Kirshner was in, where she has made a commitment to the town that she was writing about and she still spends half of her year there. Like, that's more likely, first of all, to produce a nuanced, accurate picture and it also is more incentive to be sure you've gotten things right because you're going to be there again. <laughs> Definitely. You have to see those people again. Exactly. Um, and so I have one final question uh-huh. uh, from your conversation with Hannah, which is, do you think that you could catch a wild boar? I'm absolutely positive that I could not. I bet you could, though. <laughs> That's extremely <laughs> kind of you to say because I honestly think you could do it, too. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, I I have to tell you that's one of the, the one of the few Japanese words that I know. Inoshishi, that's a wild boar. because oh. it's one of the twelve uh, zodiac years, so it's easier to oh. remember. Oh well, you learn something new every day. <laughs> Well, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Hannah Kirshner and to our stupendous producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac's conversation with theatre director Awoye Timpo and dramaturg Arminda Thomas. Until then, get back to work! Hey, Slate Plus members, thank you so much for your membership. We really appreciate your support. Here are a couple of questions just for you. I wondered of all of the things that you did, if there was one that just really appealed to you, that you really enjoyed, that you, I don't, I'm not going to say that you wish that you could just stick to that one and, and not, you know, because you were just so enamored by it. But was there one of the things that you did that just really stuck with you more than the others? Oh my gosh, well, every single one while I was in the middle of doing it, like while I was in the middle, I was, there was, you know, there was a point where I was like, oh, maybe I should just become a woodturner. This is amazing. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just do this. Um, the dog hunting, I, I mean, I'm pretty ambivalent about killing animals, eating animals, but I was like just so taken with that whole process. But I really loved working in the sake brewery and I was so flattered that when I came back after finishing the book, the owner and Toji head brewer asked me to keep working there. So I've continued to work in the sake brewery now. This I was there again this winter um, doing that for a third year. And um, yeah, I think I'll be spending my winters working in the sake brewery indefinitely. Wow, that's amazing. He lets me work part-time because it sort of works out for him to have somebody part-time, and he knows that my real job is as a writer. But, um, yeah, I was just, I was so, I was like, yay, I didn't just get in the way. I actually (laughs) made myself useful. Right, no, yeah, I I see that. And it's like, it's like this combination of poetry and science, the work of making sake, and that I just love about it. It reminded me there's... um, I don't know if you know the sake bar Hagi in um, kind of near Times Square. It's just, you I know, don't it's, know a, that it's a sake bar in, in Manhattan. But uh-huh. um, I always like going there as much as anything else, because obviously the, the traits of the sake are, um, are translated into English. And so I don't know anything about it. So I just pick something that sounds like me. So, you know, bitter, dark. Uh, you know, confusing, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, so I love the way that, the, you know, the descriptions of sake are very key to uh, one's 
kind of enjoyment of it. So it seems like it's appropriate for a writer. Yeah, and just the way that the Toji, the head brewer, talked about it is so poetic and like just like what he wanted to express with his sake, like have it be a breath of fresh mountain air or that sake is like a flower that, you know, it tastes delicious as a, you know, it can be a bud or blooming or even starting to wilt. It's still beautiful in each phase. He would just give me these like gems. I'm like, oh, I got to write that down. Thank you. <laughs> um, but then, you know, we're also like taking measurements and working in a little laboratory to test things and and then when he's done brewing, he's got to switch over to his businessman hat and work on the, the business side of things. It's As writers do. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the chapter that most stuck with me was, was the growing of rice, which is both incredibly hard work, clearly, but the, the sort of the appreciation that you kind of expressed at the end, it was so affecting. You know, it seemed like that really even as someone who has been very attached to and very concerned about food for your whole life, like that changed the way that you respond to food. Can you talk about that yeah. a bit? I mean, anybody who spent any time in Japan or with anybody Japanese knows that you don't waste a single grain of rice in, from your bowl, that you eat every last grain of rice, um, that that's good manners. But it's like one thing to know that something's good manners and it's like another thing to like feel it viscerally <laughs> and growing rice. You know, the, the friends that I learned from are growing, doing natural farming, which is also essentially traditional farming, doing everything with hand tools and not using any agricultural chemicals. So to do everything from planting the seedlings you know, bending over to, to push each seedling into the mud, weeding the fields all summer, harvesting the bunches by hand and hanging them to dry and then using a machine that's machines that are pedal powered to thresh and mill the rice. Like, yeah, every grain is really precious. <laughs> and like, then they also like, I mean, there's another saying that like, there's like, you know, multiple spirits and every grain of rice and like the rice that I grew, then it evoked like the blue dragonflies in spring and red dragonflies in fall and like the wildflowers blooming and the smell of the mint when you step on it that's growing near the rice and like all, you know, all these little details, like that was all part of it too. Yeah. And just the kind of that life is unpredictable. I mean, the the, at the end where you're just you're just waiting for your rice to dry so that you can you know use that pedal machine and like it just they keep being typhoons and so yeah. <laughs> it's the best laid plans right because you know whereas if it was if you in a more kind of factory situation you just have to find some way of well they got to dry because we got to get on because we've got you know right right and that's why people use machines and rice dryers and things now but so beautiful to see the rice drying in the fields and it and it does I think it really does taste different too it's sometimes hard to tell with stuff like that whether you're just you believe it tastes different because <laughs> mm -hmm. it means something different although but I don't know if it really matters why like yeah. if it's really a, if you could measure the difference in the taste or if it just you have a different relationship to it because of the way it was grown That's it for this week. Thanks so much for your support. 